Welcome to our podcast, COP26 and the Journey to Change, a podcast brought to you by Visit Scotland's business events team. COP26 is all about change, the vital and necessary change we need to make not just as individuals, but as communities, countries and continents, the global journey of change to address climate change and its impact. In this podcast, we will be discussing how the issues of change and sustainability affect the business events sector, and also how business events can help bring about the change that we need. We will be questioning what we can learn from COP26 and what our industry can do to change itself. And we'll be examining the COP26 programme themes, including energy, nature, youth and science, to find those crucial intersections where business events can make a difference and help achieve the outcomes of COP26 and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. At Visit Scotland, we believe that business events are more than just meetings. We believe business events can be catalysts for social and economic change. As Scotland welcomes COP26, we welcome you to our podcast. Stay tuned, follow for new updates and enjoy. Welcome everyone, the session's about to begin. Please take your seat and make yourself comfortable. Please ensure your tea and coffee is topped up and feel free to shut down your emails and enjoy the session. Today, we'll be discussing cities, regions and built environment. To help us in our discussions, we are delighted to be joined by Richard Bellingham, Director, Institute for Future Cities, University of Strathclyde. And our guest host is Patrick Lamont. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. So today's COP26 presidency theme focuses on cities and the built environment. When we think about the built environment of the business events sector, hotels and conference centres, the challenges in making significant change can seem pretty daunting. What are your thoughts on what the business events sector can do to reduce its carbon footprint in its built environment? The first off thing is to improve the efficiency of energy use. Huge amounts of energy go into heating buildings, cooling buildings, and then bathing and laundering, basically. So the first off in reducing carbon emissions is to reduce the amount of energy being consumed. And that means more efficient buildings, heated appropriately, cooled appropriately, and then also using energy efficient uh, systems for heating water and for laundering clothes and uh, cleaning the building generally. But it's often it's often the kind of, uh, one of these orphan topics, which is, you know, people get very focused on the production of renewable energy. But actually, number one is how you use the energy. Reduce the amount of energy you consume. And actually, there's really big paybacks. By, by reducing energy consumption, you reduce your costs. Mm-hmm. And actually, you become more profitable. So, uh, you know, when I was um, working with Scottish government, I mean, we... One some of the fastest paybacks we discovered were were on really elementary things people could do on energy efficiency, like like just putting things like timer plugs on vending machines. 
so that you're not chilling things like drinks, canned drinks, uh, for hours on end when nobody's actually using that uh, particular machine. Yeah, there was a payback time of something like six weeks. It was it was just it was just extraordinarily fast. So that that payback time is from the point of purchasing the time plug to having made your money back and then saving money. It's that yeah quick. yeah basic basically yeah every yeah after six weeks you're in profit just <laughs> on, on an and some of these solutions are really really uh, very very easy to do the. You know, and also things. I mean, things like ventilation. Um, you know, making sure your buildings aren't drafty or, you know, unnecessarily ventilated. I mean, there is a tension there at the moment, of course, with the, you know, needing COVID precautions. So, so people are tending to ventilate their buildings quite quite rightly. But there's a there's a balance people have to think about in terms of uh, air conditioning, temperature, and ventilation. Yeah, getting that right. Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, in Scotland, perhaps with the exception of the brand new P&J Live in Aberdeen, we're dealing with, you know, quite an older building stock in a lot of certainly our, our iconic hotels and even some of our, our conference centres are quite old as well now. With these older buildings, how difficult is it to perhaps introduce great energy efficiency changes like you've just described? It sounds like some might be easier to achieve, but then there's, there might be bigger systemic issues. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It can be um, very difficult to install comprehensive energy efficiency measures um, across buildings. But the the first thing for any operation, uh, you know, and I would go beyond the building, but it is to to work out where are we using energy, where are we using it least efficiently, and then work out what's the cost effective um, investment for that particular set of operations. I won't be able to give people magic solutions right right here and now because it really does have to be done on a case-by-case basis. But getting an analysis, you know, you know, getting a consultant in to give you an energy efficiency analysis, not that expensive. And it's it's really, you know, money well spent, I would say. And not not just for events, for almost any business, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I suppose a lot of the building stock in terms of if it's business events or not is shared and similar across not just Scotland, but you know, much of the older world, I suppose, in that sense. Um, you know, you've mentioned kind of the cost implications as an immediate saving, but in, in your view, what are the longer term implications of not introducing these changes? Are they are they really as great? Do you know, do all these small changes add up to a lot in terms of our impact? I wouldn't necessarily call them small changes. I mean, if if we're in uh, a country, you know, like Scotland in northern Europe, a very significant proportion of our energy consumption is related to heating buildings. And we simply have to get better at doing that. If you go to Scandinavia, they have far stricter regulations around the efficiency of buildings. And how those are heated, and that means their carbon footprint from that activity is also much lower. So it does have a significant impact, providing everyone does it, over, over providing we cover a lot of the building stock over, over time. Eventually, of course, you know, that, that will be down to regulation. We'll, we'll get so much done through organisations, businesses, the public sector willingly investing, and, and because they've got a good business case to do it, 
and then beyond that, it will be down to regulation to um, to push the the remainder of the building stock along that road. Um, there will be need to be exceptions. There will be iconic buildings where it will just be, you know, so exceptional and so disruptive to introduce new technologies. It won't be appropriate. But for the vast majority, there are there are decent solutions that can be can be implemented. And I think that kind of leads us on quite nicely. I think sometimes when I certainly when I think about the built environment, I I tend to think of a classic stone building, be it in a city centre or be it outside of a city centre. But then that that also then I have to think about that. There's also, especially in city centres, like where you work at the University of Strathclyde, you're deeply embedded into a wider neighbourhood and network. And one thing that I know that you're interested in is district heating. Perhaps you could explain a little bit more about yeah. what that is and when we're thinking about this much bigger picture, how that could really radicalise things. Yeah, one of, one of the problems we, we often see is that for understandable reasons, uh, businesses, other organi- public sector organisations, they look at their operations and their buildings on a standalone basis, almost like their their building. Their you know it could be a hospital, it could be a swimming pool, it could be you know the city, the the city council chambers, but they look at them like they're sitting on a little island somewhere, rather than being right next to all sorts of other buildings which also have energy consumption and energy production abilities so so often we find you know joined up solutions where we work out well during this time period this building is needs heating like an office building but you get into the evening and it needs no heating whatsoever but it is next door to some big residential blocks so if they say can share the same heating solution it's far more efficient for both and uh, is often far more cost effective now one of the one of the techniques and you were leading into this uh, that's been used across many parts of Europe in terms of reducing carbon emissions and delivering heat more effectively is by the use of district heating systems and um, this is where you have insulated hot water pipes essentially underneath the streets, and they deliver heating water to communities, to buildings. And by generating the heat far more efficiently, that reduces the carbon emissions. So one of the techniques used to generate the heat is combined heat and power, which is a technique whereby well, a conven- let me explain how a conventional power station yeah, works. Yeah, no, do, do. Uh, A conventional power station, it produces electricity, and, and that's what you want it to do. But a side effect of producing the electricity is they throw away a lot of heat. So a conventional combined cycle gas turbine, really efficient one, would throw away half the energy going into it in the film form of hot air fully fully half oh yeah 50 percent 50 percent gone um an older coal-fired power station might throw away anything up to 70 percent of the energy actually the input energy uh going into the system and it's just thrown away as hot air or or, or hot water because it's not it's not at a high enough temperature to be used to generate uh, electricity now but it is at a high enough temperature to heat people's homes or to or to 
for you to wash in or to wash your clothes in or for many um, industrial and business processes. So what we've seen in places like Denmark is actually they've connected up their power stations. So you get the surplus heat from that power station and it's piped for something like 30 kilometres. Uh, one example I looked at, 30 kilometres to Copenhagen and it's used to heat people's homes. It means it's cheaper because the energy would have been thrown away anyway and and it reduces overall carbon emissions. So it's, it's a really strong outcome for on both sides. The problem is it's disruptive and it costs a lot of money to put those big insulated hot water pipes underneath the streets in the first place. So yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago, University of Strathclyde, I mean, we installed our own district heating system for the whole campus and it is reducing our carbon emissions. Well, the, the figures vary, but I did see some figures of saying it was something like 50% reduction in the campus's carbon emissions simply by having our own combined heat and power system and our own district heating system. But I would say laying the pipes in a dense urban environment was not easy. And I know and I know the people doing that ran into a lot of problems. They got through it, but it was not straightforward and it costs a lot of money. Uh, I, I can yeah. believe you on that. So I think just almost to help myself and perhaps our listeners understand, rather than having thinking about just a, a basic house situation or a single hotel, having a, a generator in there that produces hot water by burning energy coming in you remove that off-site and you produce your electricity and hot water at the same time and then pipe the hot water back in and that's that's what district heating can achieve yes yes that's right absolutely right the other thing you can do with district heating is you can take surplus heat from anybody who happens to have surplus heat and there are a surprising number of operations you go to a city like glasgow and you find There's a big facility, Baking Biscuits, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, Baking Biscuits is a fairly high temperature process. It throws away lots of heat. And then you can uh, use that heat. If you have a heat market, the district heating system can buy that heat, use it to heat people's homes. Um, Likewise, you can get other low-carbon forms of heat from places like Glasgow, They've got old mine workings, etc., underneath them. And you could put heat pumps into the mine workings, into the water in the mine workings, take extract heat from those. Once again, you can put that as a low-carbon form of heat into your district heating system. Um, so you can so you could take multiple forms of heat and use that. Uh, to give you an even lower carbon footprint than you had in the first place. And that's what they do do in Denmark, is is basically you can bid your heat into the system, essentially, and make a profit from things you were just literally throwing away, either hot water or, um, you know, hot air. A whiskey distillery I was looking at, it was a few years ago, but I was looking at a whiskey distillery, I won't say which one. We started looking at this whiskey distillery because a water engineer on the on the Clyde he said you know this drain it runs really hot most of the time and so we traced it back we find a whiskey distillery uh, is at the end other end of this drain and that's what's producing all this hot water going into the river Clyde so so I talked to the people there and they say ah oh, yeah yeah well the issue is so whiskey, of course, is a hot process. You're distilling and then and then you condense, but then you have lots of hot water. But it comes out 
Um, no, I think it was coming out of the uh, the process, the whiskey process, at about, I don't know, 70-odd degrees. And they said, yeah, but the maximum temperature we're allowed to put into the sewers, into the drainage system, is about, I think it was about 40 degrees. They said 41 degrees. And so what we do is we take that, all that hot water and we mix it with cold water and we throw it down the drain. And it was... <laughs> And I was just amazed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, and I, they were literally throwing money down the drain. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. And they were quite <laughs> close to people living in lower-income housing, social housing, who would have loved to have had that hot water heating their homes. Yeah. Um, but nobody... Nobody had ever put the two together. No. Nobody, nobody had ever joined them together. I think there's a lot to unpackage in what you've just said. So to, to me, in my mind, it sounds like in many ways, we have an electricity grid with decentralised production that everybody understands, and that's just the way we've been brought up. You turn the switch, it all works. But hot water has been done very differently. And so it sounds like from what you're saying that there's a potentiality to create a district grid or almost a national grid and find these sources that stop wasting money and mixing cold water into hot and pouring it down the Clyde yeah. and put it diverted into people's homes. and Yeah, but the trouble is it does take, you know, quite significant intervention to get that enabling grid of of hot water pipes in the system. I mean, you know, it's like when, they, when natural gas went into people's homes, that was in a huge governmental intervention to create mm -hmm. a gas grid that allowed that to be piped from the North Sea into people's homes. And actually, you know, it requires something similar. Not maybe on that scale, but it does require, you know, very significant intervention. There is progress on this. You know, mm. Glasgow City Council have introduced planning rules around, you know, if you build certain types of buildings, you have to look at the potential for district heating in, in certain areas of Glasgow. And um, Scottish government, I know, is changing the law around district heating to try and promote uh, d that development but it it will be a long-term haul and it will it does require funding and mm. and probably i you know past experience suggests some kind of public sector underwriting in denmark they did it by selling bonds to the public they sold uh, district heating bonds uh, like kind of a loan to the public uh, so people could buy these bonds to invest in the district heating system, but all the bonds were underwritten by the government ultimately. So everybody was guaranteed you're you're loaning it to the district heating system, but you're not going to uh, lose your money because basically the government is is saying you you will get your money back. So, but that was that was very successful. It raised hundreds of millions of kroner at the time to to roll this out. Wow, yeah. and I think also something you've just said there was that it it takes a certain amount of willpower and financing to get these things in motion. But then perhaps if we reflect that today at COP is the day that speaking about cities and the built environment, maybe this is a moment where governments will kind of take heed and take message. And maybe this is a theme that will come up today that will generate some, uh, I don't know, some greater interest or some impetus behind this, you, you might hope. I I, yes, today's uh, the day. <laughs> absolutely, and you know there, you know we have sessions focusing specifically on how do you create sustainable cities. So it'll be really fascinating to see what comes out in terms of concrete action. You know, in terms of, you know, it's it's like what you know Greta Thunberg was saying the other day. You know, we need to go beyond, 
you know, slogans and, you know, policy commitments to concrete actions. And that that's really what we need to see is concrete commitments. It's mm-hmm. not we want to get to zero carbon. It's how do we get to zero carbon? Yeah, absolutely. And also you've mentioned you know, there's challenges in introducing these big systems, but then that makes me think about uh, UN, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, UN SDG 17, which is partnership for the goals, which I think really connects all the UN SDGs, but it's it's at the end, but it's perhaps the, one of the most important that these things can't happen in isolation. You have to work together. You have to have public sector, private sector, and individuals all wanting to get to a place and understanding that there might be some disruption, but if we work in partnership, I, I love the example of the bonds there. If we invest collectively, these obstacles can be overcome. Absolutely. I mean, I think there there does need to be a partnership between um, government, the commercial sector, and, and indeed wider public sector players in order to deliver the level of change we're talking about. And it also has to be delivered, though, in a way that's socially and politically acceptable. Um, so if we're talking, so some of the changes we we're talking about will cost significant amounts of money, and there needs to be an honest conversation about that and how those those costs will be met down the line, and who those burdens are going to fall on them. Um, in the UK, by and large, we've we've followed a system whereby the costs of renewables, etc., are are transferred onto customers through our energy bills, through our electricity bills, through our gas bills, and we pay effectively the subsidies for renewables are paid that way. There are other models. It could, because one of the issues that creates is it can be argued that that creates a disproportionate burden on poorer households. Because if we go to richer households, Energy bills are a smaller proportion of their overall spend. An alternative way of doing it is to say, actually, we we implement this through taxation. And so what we've got at the moment in our energy bills is we are paying essentially a kind of taxation to pay for renewables and other interventions. It's just kind of a bit more hidden from us. And I guess that's one of the reasons why the mechanism is more popular with politicians, is that they don't have to say, we're increasing your income tax by 1%, 2% to pay for these entirely necessary changes. They say, Oh, with the um, you know the electricity and gas regulator is is changing uh, you, you know the way your electricity bill is calculated, and most people, most people don't really look at how that bill is calculated. No, and nobody wants to be the the chancellor or the prime minister who raises taxes. That doesn't often go across well in the media. <laughs> well, uh, well, exactly, exactly. That's I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. It is, it is, it is unpopular, and that's politically unpopular. But the the other thing is is to look at the wider benefits these things can, uh, you know, this type of change can bring. If we're building district heating systems across our urban areas, that creates jobs. Yeah. You know, those are jobs that people can have, and they will. You know, run for for years and connecting those systems up to people's homes that will generate jobs, and that, those are green, lower carbon jobs. And so, so there are real benefits for communities in in this kind of change. It's about meeting that. So that's why I was meaning about social and political acceptability and having an honest conversation. You can say, well, it is going to cost more, but it will generate this many jobs, or 
your energy bills, it'll be cheaper to heat your home or mm-hmm. whichever, you know, the bit. It's important to design these solutions in a way that it delivers the benefits that people care about. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Absolutely. I think that in my head, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the, the great big, like the, the big hotels in the center of Glasgow, the event campuses, and likewise in Edinburgh as well. And just thinking there's so much potentiality in everything you've just described in these locations for these, you know, these these big players in the business events sector. Thank you for that, Richard. And I think we're going to have a wee coffee break just now. Please make your way to the foyer, where tea and coffee will be waiting for you. We'll see you back here soon. Don't be late. We won't wait for you. So, Richard, nice to get a wee break and have a coffee. Do you travel to many conferences through your line of work? Yeah, I mean, it, it happens uh, quite frequently. I mean, I get invited to far more than I go to, as we all do, you know. Um, but yeah, so, so cities, resilient and sustainable cities is, is a global issue um, that's getting action all over the world. I mean, during, you know, lockdown times, COVID times, these conferences are happening almost entirely online. Um, and... But yeah, pre that, uh, yeah, um, travel to places like India and Singapore and China and yeah, all over the world to um, far flung world to, and, to engage. Yeah, and if there's if there's one thing that you'd recommend people take to a conference or a meeting, what would that be? Take to a conference hall meeting. Uh, what what beyond your mobile phone with the uh, premier? Well, maybe that's it. <laughs> um, I I would say uh, oh. Uh, that is a, that is such a tough question in a conference hall. For me, I'm I'm still a bit retro, so I I like a notepad and pen, um, you know, because it just helps keep track of what's going on. And um, often in conferences, etc., you you're hearing so many interesting things that if and at the time you think that's brilliant, and but if you don't note it down immediately, you won't. It won't necessarily be there at the end because you're meeting so many other people. So I'd say, yeah, notepad and pen just to note down the really interesting stuff. Um, I'd also say probably um, in many parts of the world, people are still, you know, really into business cards. So number one, um, take your business cards. Do not forget your business cards <laughs> because in some parts of the world, like Southeast Asia, if you don't have your business cards, um, people people will look at you very oddly. So it's uh, a respect thing, isn't it, to exchange yeah. business cards and to acknowledge the yeah. card that you've been given? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so uh, have your business cards ready, receive other people's business cards and have a, have a good place to put them and then sort them all out at the end of the day. So don't lose them once you've got them. Don't lose them. Yeah. <laughs> And I think I'm going to have to ask because we've been asking many of our guests and we're keeping a track now, tea or coffee when you're in the breaks? I, th- I would probably go for coffee. Uh, certainly if I've been travelling, you know, I might just be a little bit jet lagged and I'll probably, I'll probably want a little bit of um, caffeine to lift me up. So, uh, so yeah, it's a nice uh, milky coffee is probably what I'd go for mainly. Grand. The next session is about to begin. Please make your way back to the auditorium. Thinking maybe about, you know, smaller venues or, you know, perhaps a standalone hotel in a country park, that kind of a location. 
there's lots of options that I've kind of had a look into that's, um, you know, heat pumps from the ground or solar panels and maybe perhaps even small wind turbines, things like that. Are these viable solutions? Can business owners think to install these things and see a return? Well, yes. It depends on the circumstances of the individual property. I mean, um, you know, if you're in a country hotel somewhere, you, you might think about biomass boilers, for example, you know, to, you know, uh, a furnace that burns, you know, wood, you know, low quality wood that isn't going to be used for other purposes, that that could be an option for you. Um, if you've got a stream or a pond or something like that, um, yeah, heat pumps uh, are a reasonable solution. I mean, there's a significant cost of installation and, and indeed operation. So it does depend on having the right conditions. Um, solar, solar thermal and solar photovoltaics, the prices of those are coming down quite significantly, particularly photovoltaics. So if you've got some nice south-facing roofs, I think that must be uh, you know, a, reasonable, a reasonable investment. It will generate you electricity at a roundabout grid price at the moment. So the same price as you're paying for grid, you're probably going to get uh, your, your, your electricity from. The other thing to think about these types of solutions is, is about resilience. So if you have some ability to generate your own electricity, your own heat, your, et cetera, it, it could for, for isolated businesses, et cetera, you know, country, or smaller venues, it could mean that they have more resilience in their operations as well, because they have a choice. You know, do we take energy from one of the grids, or do we use our own systems? And and being able to swap those in and out if there's if there's ever an issue with one of those, that's you know that's that's worthwhile as a business. Certainly, when I've travelled in other countries, which we kind of take it for granted that our grid. You know our electricity grid, our gas grid, etc. is is it is generally super reliant. I mean, it's very very rare that we get any kind of blackout. Um, you know, any significant. I mean, you know, you know. I think last year there was you know a little one in Edinburgh. I, I remember, but generally, I, compared to other countries, our, our grid is our electricity system is super reliant. If I if I go to places like India or, or the Philippines or et cetera, their grids are far less reliant. And it's kind of routine for people to have their own generation systems and, and battery systems because, uh, because blackouts in the, in the system are very, you know, frequent. It's worth it. It's worth just thinking about, yeah, the resilience of your your own systems as well as part of a business. Is it's like, yeah, how to how do I get business continuity? How do I ensure business continuity? Absolutely, yeah. I think you said there resilience, and I suppose with COP taking place, as we know, partly we're going to have to think about how we, if change is coming, we need to be resilient towards it as much as we want to mitigate too much change coming. So perhaps resilience is a key word to kind of take away from a lot of what's been spoken about this past week and today. Absolutely. I mean, the the one thing that I would say is is absolutely certain is change is coming. Uh, we just don't know what kind of change it is. So so we, we need systems that are resilient to unpredictable change. And that that is that's really quite tricky. I mean and to give a you know a, a really obvious example, 
nobody really predicted COVID and the impacts it would have on economic structures and the way we use infrastructure, etc. And it means that, you know, we we collectively, organisations, we've invested in, you know, very recently in very significant items of built infrastructure, transport infrastructure, etc., which may not necessarily be used in the same way uh, as we expected when they were built two, three, four years ago. And, that, and we're talking about assets that have 30, 40, 50-year li- you know, lifespans. Yeah, so, so the ability just to think, to design flexibly, I think is one of the things I would suggest is necessary, is when people are, you know, it could be designing an event space, and just thinking about, well, let's just think about if this weren't an event space, what might it be in the future instead? And likewise for the university, I mean, we're investing large amounts in our campuses, but these these are based on an assumption around the model of how we do research and how we teach, and that this will continue into the future. Won't necessarily. So there's a question there for us about, you know, how will our buildings be deployed in the future if the model changes in some way? There are some great examples in Holland where they've very deliberately designed buildings to have flexible use so so that they can be used for, for residential use, but also as a school or a hospital. And, and actually, you can mix the use if it, you know, if you wish to. So... Yeah, I would just say, yeah, a bit, a bit of thinking about how do we how do we design flexibly for the future is necessary. And are there other areas, you know, aside from perhaps buildings which we've been focused on, where we can look to make efficiencies? Well, it is, it's certainly worth looking at transportation. I mean, cities are critically reliant on on transportation systems. You know, bringing goods and and people, you know, to and from. Without transportation, our cities simply wouldn't work. Um, the same is true of the events sector. You know, it's it's basically how it works, and so I think it's something the events sector is going to have to think about into the future: is how are the people getting to this event? How do we reduce the environmental impact of that? You know, we're here, and tens of thousands of people from across the world travel for COP. For you know, and they will have some will have flown, some will have come through other means. But um, yeah, if we can encourage people to use lower carbon forms of transport or definitely to use carbon offsetting as, as part of if, if it's unavoidable to, to fly, for example, then, uh, then that has to be beneficial. Um, also worth events organisers and, and, and the sector thinking about where their goods and services are coming from. I hope in Scotland we are not importing, you know, bottled water from Fiji. But uh, you know, we have very good water here already. Um, so, so, but it makes no sense to transport water halfway around the world when we have very good water here. So, it's worth events teams just thinking about where's the embedded carbon in the things we use. You know, is it you know the the food, the water, the you know, you know the sheets on people's beds. Where are those coming from, and are there ways we can reduce the carbon footprint from what we're consuming? And part of that will be down to transportation, and part of it's down to consuming local if you can. You know. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the times when the word transport comes up, we immediately think of the delegates and their journey to and from a destination. But really interesting to hear your different perspective on that towards logistics. And I, I also hope that we're not shipping more from Fiji <laughs> all the way to Scotland. But I do love to see, like at the hydro in Glasgow, the water refilling stations that you have available so you can refill your bottle and why, why consume some plastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know some organisations have banned the selling of, of bottled water in, in their own facilities. I mean... Um, uh, because of, because of the carbon footprint of that, yes, you, you're welcome to refill your own water bottle. And I know some cities which are going for, you know, net zero carbon. They they're going down the road of banning the importation of bottled water. I think Gothenburg has gone down this road, but they've gone down. So when a city, there are different definitions of net zero carbon. So so in the UK, UK cities, they've gone down the road of using. Uh, what's called a geographic boundary. So like the carbon we consume inside our boundaries, that's our carbon, that's what we're responsible for, and that's how we measure net zero carbon. Some cities like Gothenburg and other Scandinavian cities, they're looking at the wider carbon footprint of the things they consume as well. So if there's a tonne of steel in a, in a Volvo car, okay, where did that steel come from? What's the carbon footprint of that? That counts again against us if we buy a Volvo car. It's a far stricter standard to adopt. And 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 I actually am watching with interest to see how they achieve that because I think it's astonishingly difficult for modern cities to, to hit that target. I think, you know, places in Sweden, they're going to end up having to plant vast forests outside you know, their cities in order to and Sweden has the space to do that. But many cities around the world don't have that choice. So I think I think we, we need a mixed approach to achieving this net zero carbon target. Part of it's about reducing consumption, part of it's about renewable energy, and part of it will be about uh yeah, carbon offsetting. How do we how do we capture carbon or uh you know through growth of trees or geological uh, capture and uh, storage, etc. But yeah, it's going, to, it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. And unfortunately, there's no magic bullet, you know, it, and the different solutions suit different places. Is it, What works in one place will not be the best solution in another. So we have to, that's the other thing we have to analyse is what's the best solution here? And for the businesses, you know, you know, in the event sector, the same is really true for them. There's no single magic bullet. There's different solutions work for different players. I think I was probably hoping to get a magic bullet out of you, but <laughs> as you say, depending if you're south-facing or not, you know, there's there's different options available to you. But I think I've, through a lot of what you said, you know, it's about taking ownership of the situation, having a think about it, and becoming engaged in the process and not being passive and looking to find solutions. Yes, absolutely, and not not taking for granted you know the way things have been in the past is is the way they need to be in the future you know just just looking at the assumptions of how your operation runs and and seeing whether you can change those i think you know for the events sector there could well be you know marketing advantages in in saying we are pursuing a net zero carbon event, for example. For some sectors, that will be something that they wish to endorse and support, and and that will give the you know those venues, those those operators, an edge. You know that they're able to say that. Oh yeah, I, I very much agree with you on that. I think as 
thinking perhaps COP's going to be one of those kind of like seminal moments that will really flick public awareness and things. Change will come. And it, and some of it will be due to climate change and some of it will be due to social and economic reasons. Yeah. So change is coming. We're just not sure what that change might yet be. Richard, thank you very much for your time today. Great to be here. Thank you. This brings our session and our first podcast series to an end. We hope you've enjoyed it. And thanks for joining us on this journey. To find out more, please visit businesseventscot And thanks for listening.